out. Um, but now this week we're going to transition to the pathway of mission because we want to be known as a people on mission. And I personally, I love stories. I'm sure like most of you probably do. I think that's part of the way we're wired. It's a common experience. Uh, I've got a list full uh, on my Audible account of books that I want to listen to as I drive. I just, I love stories. They capture my imagination. I love movies. I love television shows. We escape reality through good stories. Uh, and if they're true stories, sometimes that's even more intriguing because sometimes the reality is that, as they say, truth can be even stranger than fiction. And so we, we love stories and documentaries and just looking at things in life and, and how they came to be. And, but have you ever come into somebody telling a story and you've come into it like in the middle or maybe you come into it at the end and you're like trying to find your place in the story, trying to find like where the context is, I'm not really sure how we got to this point, but you wanna kind of dive in. Uh, the reality is like that happens to a lot of us. And I think one of the ways I wanna show you why it's important that we understand the context of a story and of something that's going on in a story is that we know unless something fits inside the framework, that's really how you know what makes the difference in the story, right? So if you pick up on a portion of it, but you don't know where it fits in the framework, it's like, what does that really mean? Let me just give you some examples. How many of you, I'm gonna give you some quotes from some movies that probably, depending on your age, some of you in here may know. Uh, and let's just see if you even first recognize the quote and then second, like what the context of the quote is. So here's the first one, forgive me for trying to do the voice, but uh, I miss you, Benny, boo, 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 boo. Anybody know where that's from? Somebody say it. How to lose a guy in 10 days. That's right. Now, you hear that and you're like, that girl's got issues, right? I mean, she's like addicted to this guy. But the reality is, the context, she actually wasn't. Not at that point. She was trying to be annoying because she, she was part of her column that she was writing, right? So like the context makes the difference. How about this one? Sometimes I guess there's just not enough rocks. That's not a very good impression of Forrest Gump. But again, if you don't know Forrest Gump, you haven't seen it, shame on you. But uh, that's, that's kind of like, okay, why is he talking about rocks? And like, why would that quote come to my mind of all the things to quote from Forrest Gump? But if you can put it in the context of the story, Forrest and Jenny are walking as adults and they pass the house where she was abused and it was vacant and she's throwing rocks and it's powerful. And she runs out of rocks and she falls on the ground and weeps. It's a powerful moment in its context. How about Luke? Oh, I am your father. Now, I'm 42, so that could be Star Wars or it could be Tommy Boy. I'm going with Star Wars because the context of it's a lot different in Star Wars than it is in Tommy Boy as he's speaking into the fan. How about, we were on a break. That phrase is really kind of the linchpin of seven seasons of that show. But if you don't know that, it's lost on you. And that's the reality. Like if you're, not familiar, if you're not familiar with one of these lines or you can't place where it was inside the story, it loses its weight, it loses its glory. They're just quotes from some movie or some show. But if you know the story, it brings a specific visual to our minds. Like you can maybe see the characters in your mind. Maybe you can even remember the moment in your life when you saw that movie or, or was really into that show 
You can appreciate the moment because of the place that it took in the greater story. And that's my goal today. It's a bit of an ambitious goal, I'll admit, but I wanna set the context of missions inside the story of God. But why are we even talking about missions? Did you know that there are roughly 7.7 billion people on earth right now? 7.7 billion people. Sorry, that was another movie quote. Of those 7.7 billion, some people groups are classified as what's called unreached people groups. And for a people group to be unreached, that means they have less than 2% of their population identifying as evangelical Christian and less than 5% just adhering to any kind of Christianity in any kind of stream at all. This is how David Platt, who uh, wrote the book Radical, he was over the International Mission Board for several years, now he's a pastor in Virginia, but this is how he defines unreached people groups. Unreached peoples and places are those among whom Christ is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known in its broader population without outside help. They don't know the name of Christ, They don't have a church presence anywhere around them. And according to Joshua Project, there are 7,414 unreached people groups in the world. Let that sink in. That's not nations, that's just people groups. 7,414 people groups that are unreached. That makes up, catch this, 41% of 7.7 billion people, 41%. Four out of every 10 people that walk this earth are a part of a people group that have never heard the name of Jesus and they don't have a consistent church witness in their area. That's staggering, it's staggering. And that's only the unreached people groups. That doesn't include people who are just lost in general and don't have a Christian witness and do have a Christian witness among them, but just haven't come to faith in Jesus. And I'm, so I'm not sitting here today saying like, we don't understand missions. I'm, I'm, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we don't care. I'm not saying that. Like we do care as a church. And I'm not saying that we don't get it. But my question is, are you as gutted as I am that this many people are alive in our world right now, apart from even a witness of the gospel? And some of these statistics are so large that it would be tempting for us to just kind of throw in the towel, to wave the white flag of surrender in missions. We're tempted to just get comfortable here where we are in the Bible Belt with our own personal relationship with God. And we'd be tempted to lose motivation for missions to altogether. And Lord, help us. And I believe he wants to. And one way to reignite our hearts in missions is to re-examine, I think, the context of missions and the entire story of God, to see the call to missions, to see its beauty and to be captivated by it. And to do that, we're gonna be covering a lot of different texts, something I don't typically do, but today I wanna cover a lot of different texts to kind of paint the broad picture And as we survey different portions of scripture and specifically the New Testament narrative, I think we're gonna see three things. We're gonna see the authority of missions. We're gonna see the advancement 
of missions. And we're going to see the amen of missions. So I want us to see the authority of missions, the advancement of missions, and the amen of missions. And so as we do that, let's going to take some work, so let's get to it. And the first thing I want you to see is just the authority of missions. But before we jump into actually the authority of missions to Matthew 28, what we need to do is just kind of look all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. That's literally the first verse of the Bible. God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates sky and sea and land, and he fills those things with birds and animals and sun and moon and fish and the pinnacle of God's creation, the crown jewel, if you will, of God's creation is humanity. And it says that he made humans in his image, male and female, he created them in his image. And what does it mean to be made in his image? It means that, it even says in the first chapter that we're to have dominion, we're to exercise as his image bears what it would be like to live under his loving rule and reign over all creation. God would be their God. They would be his people. But as you know, our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't really execute that vocation for very long. Instead, through the deception of the devil, the serpent that comes and whispers lies, they buy into it and they try to manufacture their own glory. They want to have their own authority. They want to be in charge. And yet, Ever since, and Romans 8 even says, like ever since all of creation is fractured, the very good creation is now in utter chaos. And we see that even in that, God in his grace, because the tree of life is in the garden and he doesn't want us to be stuck forever in our fallenness, removes Adam and Eve from the garden. But before he sends them out, we get this promise. He's talking to the lying, deceiving serpent. He's talking to Eve and he's talking to Adam. And in chapter three, verse 15 of, of Genesis, this is what we see. This is what God says to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From the get-go, even in the midst of the chaos of a fractured, very good creation, God promises that a son would come from woman that would crush this deceiver and it would be a fatal blow. And at the risk of oversimplification, the rest of the Old Testament is really a story about God working in the midst of his broken and wayward creation that he loves by establishing a people of image bearers that are to live the way he intended all humanity to live. That's kind of the gist overview of the Old Testament. And he would be blessing the world through this family, through this people, Israel. And he was at work through them in their midst. They were to be a light to the nations. He delivered them from the Egyptians. He gave them his law so that they could understand what it was like to live under God's good rule and reign. He gave them the sacrificial system to understand sin and that atonement was needed to be reconciled back to him from their waywardness. He gave them grace. He disciplined them when they chased after other gods. In the end, Israel was on a roller coaster of loving God and forgetting God, of following him and then erecting idols. And yet, God knew all along this was going to be the case. And so Galatians 4, this is now the New Testament, Galatians 4 tells us that ultimately God steps into time and saves his people. Galatians 4, 4, 4 and 5, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, divine, born of a woman, human, born under the law in covenant to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. 
God redeems his people, past, present, and future through the perfect Israelite, the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes a way for us to be true sons and daughters of God, what we were created to be. Unlike Israel in total, Jesus was the true light to the nations. He was the perfect man of the word, for he was the word made flesh. He was the perfect man of prayer. And he came on a mission to seek and save the lost of all nations, of all nations, of Israel first, but of the Gentiles also. And it is this Jesus who died, but three days later is raised from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death. Praise God, hallelujah. The deceiver struck his heel, but Jesus crushed his head. He's risen and is now about establishing his kingdom all over the globe. And it's at this point in the story that we get to Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, which says, then Jesus came to them, that's the disciples, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want you to notice one thing in particular right now about this text, and it's the word authority. You circle it, underline it, or just write it in your notes, authority. Jesus has the authority to call us to missions. And look at the essence of his authority. It's total, all authority. It's all encompassing in heaven and on earth. And it's his alone has been given to me. Total authority. And how does he use his authority? Not like we often do. He uses it to send out his disciples so that they can be a blessing. He uses his authority to be a blessing to the earth, to bless the nations with the good news of the gospel and the right to become children of God. He uses his authority to bless. And this means the call to missions is not optional. And you can see it's also not just a call to make conversions. It's a call to speak the good news of Jesus to people who are image bearers of God, which is all people made, and so that they can see that their need to be redeemed is fulfilled in Jesus and they can be welcomed in to the family of God. It's a beautiful call. It's a beautiful call. That's why Paul in Romans 10 says that the feet that carry the gospel are beautiful feet. I mean, that's probably the only way my wife would say I have beautiful feet, but it's beautiful feet. We carry the good news. Sorry, she says I talk about her every week and I never ask her. So she's in the nursery, sorry, honey. But missions is, is a beautiful call, but it's also a massive responsibility. All nations, making disciples, how can we ever hope to do that? Well, the good news is that not only does Jesus have the authority to call us, he has the authority to empower us. If you look at Acts chapter one, this is Luke's second account to Theophilus. In the first account, it's the gospel of Luke where he kind of lays out what Jesus did throughout his life. And then Acts is an account of the ongoing mission of Jesus through the apostles. And so in the first chapter of Acts, this is what we see in Acts chapter one, verse six. Then they gathered around him. That's the disciples around Jesus. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In short, what he's saying is we don't know when the culmination of his kingdom will come, but we do know what we're to be about in the meantime. We are to be his witnesses. And we will be all witnesses that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the authority of missions, a creation old calling, redeemed image bearers of God who are his children and are being sent out as a reflection of his light and his goodness to the whole earth. And Jesus comes, redeems his people, empowers them to go about his business in the whole entire earth, making disciples who follow the ways of Jesus. Now that's a lot of information, okay? I get it. It's kind of overviewed like two thirds of the Bible really quick. It's a lot of info, but before we move on, I just wanna engage your heart on the issue of authority. Because while we are looking at missions today in the sense of the global scale, I do think it's hard. Let me ask, do any of you ever feel powerless just to walk across the street? To walk across the hall in your dorm? To walk down the hallway at work to a different cubicle? Do you ever feel powerless in evangelism and sharing the gospel. Because even though the deceiver was dealt a fatal blow at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter, which is still in the New Testament, says he still roams around right now, but the Lord has allowed him for at least this time to roam around. He's seeking somebody to deceive, to devour. And we all are on, are on, the, on the list. So you might think, well, I don't know if I've been deceived. Let me ask you this. Based on what Jesus has said, I think there's still a lot of us that would say this. Do you ever feel like you'd be ineffective? Ever feel like you'd be ineffective at missions, at evangelism? Like who am I to share the gospel? People know me. People see my life. Well, who am I? That's a lie. And a lot of what trips us up in that is the belief that we are witnesses of ourself, right? Because the whole fear is based upon your own righteousness. People know me, but we're witnesses of Jesus and the gospel. But he tries to deceive us. You'll be ineffective. And here's another thing you might hear in your head. You should be afraid. You should be afraid. You might lose that relationship you might lose that respect. You might lose your life, depending on where you are. And the real thing about this is that those fears are legit. You might lose a relationship. You might lose a job. And depending on where you are, you might even lose your life. But it's still deception because it's the idea that this life and this comfort now is really what's all about. It's what it's all about, is being comfortable. It's a deception, it's luring you in. It's putting you to sleep in the reality of what's going on in the world and what we've been called to. Here's another deception you may have bought into, that you're powerless, that we are powerless. 
We have nothing to offer. We, we are just meek and mild. What could we ever do to impact the world? And yet Jesus says, when my power comes on you, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus empowered his disciples in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and he empowers his people today the same way, by his spirit, to be his witnesses. He has authority over all things, heaven and earth, so let's go make disciples. That was his message to the disciples that day. That's his message to us. Have no fear. I am with you to the end. I have all authority. Let's go. Let's go. And we clearly see that he did empower them. If you continue to read through Acts, I think Acts 1.8 is really kind of an overview, not necessarily of a mission strategy, but of what was about to happen in Acts. That's what we see. It starts in Jerusalem and then it spreads out to the surrounding villages of Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. We see in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit does come and he fills the believers at the festival of Pentecost and Peter, who was scared to death of a slave girl like 40 days prior, is now telling the exact same religious leaders, y'all killed the Messiah, way to go. Jesus, he was the Messiah, God raised him from the dead. I mean, it's a bold sermon. And then Acts 2.37, this is what it says. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I imagine they were. And they all said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? We have done that. What do we do? And 3,000 people become disciples that first day there in Jerusalem. That's some church growth. That's some, that's some extra chairs having to put out. And they were witnesses in Jerusalem. But not only that, it didn't take long for the pressure on the church to be building because you start to have this movement happen. You got people in Jerusalem that starts to get a little upset. What starts with 3,000 people added becomes people imprisoned. Peter and John end up in jail. And by the time you get to Acts 7, Stephen is preaching and is stoned to death after preaching to religious leaders. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 8. This is what we see. And Saul approved of their killing him. This is 8 verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Interesting. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned, mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, we see a familiar face here, right? Saul. Saul approves of Stephen's killing and he ramps up the persecution of the church. He's going into houses and dragging people out of their house and putting them in prison. Can you imagine the fear that had to grip these disciples of Jesus? Yet in God's sovereignty, he uses this to propel and advance the mission of God. Just like we talked about in Philippians when Paul is bound and they try to chain the gospel. What happens? He's like, hey, I'll just share with every Roman guard. And the gospel goes forth. That's the way the Lord works. And so we see in verse four, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Oh my gosh. Now we're crossing cultural boundaries. We're crossing racial boundaries. You see, upon persecution, they scattered to Judea and Samaria. We're starting to see the advancement of the gospel because Jesus has authority over missions 
and he's causing the advancement of missions outside of Israel. And hang with me, we're almost done, but it doesn't stop there. In Acts 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who, has a, who was a centurion in the Italian regiment. And a bunch of Gentiles believe in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit and are baptized. So in Acts 11, Peter reports back to Jerusalem that God's even saving Gentiles, as though that wasn't the way this was always going. Peter was always a little slow to pick up on things. And the church in Jerusalem is astonished. You ever had that moment where you're like, God even saved them? Like, that's what they felt. And Peter's like, he saved them the same way. Like, they were filled with the Spirit like we were. We just went ahead and baptized them. God also saves another surprising person, Saul. He goes from persecutor to missionary. That's Acts 9. And he lands in a church in Antioch. How did the church in Antioch get started? We find out it got started because Saul was persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And it goes as far out as Antioch. And now Paul, a year, years later, is now preaching in that very church. No one is too far away from God to reach. And remember, because he has all authority, even the most hardened sinners and the most angry religious people who already think they've got it figured out can be transformed by the gospel. Saul and Barnabas are teaching in Antioch for about a year. And this is what we're told in Acts 11 about this particular church in Antioch, that where Paul and Barnabas are teaching is the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Begin to see it grow. Before that, they were pretty much known as the way. Now they're being called Christians. And it was kind of a mocking term at the time, but it's kind of stuck for 2,000 years. The Antioch church was growing, witnessing miracles, had amazing teaching. So the question is, what would God do now? Like they've reached, they've, they've gone to Jerusalem, they've gone to Judea and Samaria, they're starting to go out to the ends of the earth, what would he do? Like would he gather up Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Father, and they get together and have like a team meeting and hey, we got this powerhouse preacher down in, in, in Antioch and Paul, like he's, he's awesome. We got Barnabas who's like really encouraging, it's like literally what his name means. Uh, so like if you got great teaching and you're really encouraged, Sounds like the makings of a megachurch. They're reaching Jews and Gentiles. Man, guys, I think this is our new megachurch. Let's get all the believers to, to move to Antioch. Is that, what, is that what happens? If you haven't read, the answer to that is no. In Acts 13, we see this. Now in the church, this is Acts 13.1, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul and Barnabas are set apart from the church at Antioch by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to more people groups. The Spirit calls them, the church through fasting and prayer senses that God has called them and they confirm the call and they send them out. I mean, these are two of the very pillars probably of this church. And I know a lot of people, as we have sent out teams, even a few weeks ago, we sent a couple to Africa that's very involved here. We've sent, as you guys know, a team, a family to the Middle East. And I know at least, especially in that one, they're dear friends of ours. Like there's that party that's like, why would God take them? Like they're so key here. And yet the Lord's like, yeah, and I'm gonna replace 
their influence. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use their influence over here and I'm still gonna serve the journey in this way over here and it's just a beautiful thing. It allows people to step up. Who might be next? Hmm? Who might be next? The Spirit calls it out, the church confirms it and they send Paul and Barnabas. And by the time we reach the end of Acts, Paul has had three missionary journeys, taking the gospel as far as Rome. And we get to the end of Acts, hang with me, we're almost done, we get to the end of Acts. And here's what we see, the last two verses in Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there, this is in Rome, in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end. The rest of the New Testament is predominantly letters to these churches that Paul has visited or that Peter has helped plant. You've got some letters from John, but predominantly this is the end of the narrative of scripture, just kind of ends. And in some ways it seems like a good end, like he's sharing the gospel without hindrance in the most like mega city that there ever was at that time in Rome. And that's good, but it's kind of abrupt. It's so abrupt, in fact, that Luke intentionally ends his narrative with a Greek adverb, which is very rare in the Greek language. And it's as if he was to say, the story continues with you. And as we look at it, along with the overarching story of scripture, we do see that the end of Acts is an invitation to us. Jesus is calling us to play in the story. Over the centuries, the mission of God has advanced. These missionaries were doing this oftentimes in the midst of difficult travel, having to take certain times of year probably off due to severe weather and severe climates. But today, we can be on the other side of the globe by the end of the day. And most places in our world have electricity enough, not necessarily to make it comfortable, but to make it tolerable all year. We are called to take up the mantle of missions where we are because we are sitting here as disciples of Jesus because someone had shared the gospel with us and it got to us here in America. So the question, brothers and sisters, is what part will you play? What part will we play? What will be our position on the field. Our brief survey of Acts shows the local church was vital in the goal of missions. They sent missionaries, they prayed for missionaries. We went through Philippians back in the spring and we saw that Paul who planted the church at Philippi is now in jail. And what does the church at Philippi he planted do? They send him encouragement, they send Epaphroditus, they send financial and material support. What part where we play as a local church. Because we are all, there, all these parts we have to play in some way, sending missionaries out, praying for our missionaries, supporting and sending encouragement. We have to do all of this. What is God calling you to do? What's he calling me to do? Because to be a people collectively on mission, we need to be individuals who consider the call of God to reach all the nations. And this means on the one hand, we send people to the nations. We have done this, as I mentioned already. We've sent a team to the Middle East, a team, a family. We've sent a family, a couple to Africa just a few weeks ago for the entire fall. 
And let me tell you, they will face obstacles and they will face spiritual warfare. They already have, both, both teams have. The deceiver is after them to discourage them, to distract them, to make life harder. And not just them, the people they're trying to reach, the deceiver is there too, creating issues, facing persecution, imprisonment. If you convert to Christianity and follow Jesus in a lot of these areas of the world, it actually could mean you lose your family. It could mean you lose your job. It could mean you lose your life. So we need to be in prayer for our missionaries, brothers and sisters. We need to be. They are in a battle. We need to be praying for them and the people that they're trying to reach. So pray for them. Write them an encouraging email. Give specifically to support them and our other Love Global partners that we partner with. So God's calling us to support, but God's also calling us to go. Maybe on a mission trip to go support, to go encourage, maybe to go, to take your life in a transplanted somewhere else to be God's boots on the ground, so to speak. And if you sense this calling on your life, come and talk to the leadership after the church because again, it takes both to send you. We wanna pray with you, we wanna partner with you, we wanna see is this really the Lord calling on your life because it's a calling on you to go, but it's also a calling on us to send you. Is he calling you to go? But here's the other thing, we have a really unique opportunity in Jonesboro to reach the nations. Arkansas State brings tons of students in from all over the world every year. We don't go over there and look at them as a project. We go over them and look at somebody who bears the image of God and may come from an area that they have never heard the witness of the gospel. It's unique. You can't find that everywhere, but we do have that here. We should be good stewards of that opportunity a journey. Where are you going to play? Because we're all called to play. The question is, what part will you play? And what, what part is God calling you to play? Will you be a person on mission? Will we be a people of mission? We must be. Because this is the trajectory of history. No matter how dark or how bleak it appears, Jesus Christ has all authority on heaven and on earth. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you see the importance of putting this call within its context of the story of the Bible. This is massively important and it's an instructive call for us. It's a call of Jesus's authority, but it's also a call for people's identity to change by the power of the gospel. We are to baptize new disciples into what? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to immerse them and a new identity. And I want you to notice that we are given a new identity before we're called to obey. Do you see that? We're given a new identity before we call to obey. 
We're baptized into the name and then we're taught to follow the ways of Jesus. Why does it matter that we see the order of this? Because every single one of you is tempted to flip that. And me too. We're tempted to flip it, to to switch it in our minds. We're tempted to believe that we obey and are therefore given a new identity in Jesus. And if you relate to God, assuming this is the way it works, when your obedience seems to be spot on, you're gonna be prideful and quite honestly, just annoying. And if you believe this and your obedience is lacking, you're gonna despair and be distraught. With this view, you don't see yourself, like Jed was saying earlier, you don't see yourself as adopted, but instead as kind of more of a trial period in God's family to see if you can cut it as though God said, here's your 14 day free trial to be in my family. And if I need to at the end, I will cancel your membership. But but when you see what Jesus is actually saying here, that you are immersed in a new identity and then are called to obey the ways of Jesus, man, that radically changes everything. Your identity as a child of God is secure prior to your obedience because you've been given his name. Your obedience is an overflow. It's there, it's called to be there, but it's an overflow of your new identity. Your obedience is in your objective identity, not your subjective obedience. I mean, excuse me, I say your your obedience, your confidence is in your objective identity. And you're assured that he'll be with you to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this this is beautiful. This is the beauty of missions. Do you see it? When you see the gospel and all its beauty and the call to make disciples as a natural overflow of a people who've been given a new name, a new identity, a new family, and a relationship with God that's based on grace, it's a beautiful thing. And our relationship is secured by faith that Jesus took our place with his perfect obedience and our place on the cross And his resurrection is the seal that God was satisfied in that sacrifice. When you see this beautiful gospel, the natural response of the soul is amen. Amen. But do you know, we say that word all the time, do you know what that word means? It means so be it. So be it. That's why we say it after we pray. We praise God. We thank him for all he's done. We confess our sins. We ask for forgiveness. We ask him to meet our needs and we finish with amen. So be it, Lord. Will you do what I just asked you to do? Will you be for me who I just asked you to be? Amen. And being struck by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his call to make disciples results in a cry of our hearts, amen. But that's not the only thing. So does the end of the story. Because the end result of missions, when the story kind of reaches its resolution, we can see a picture of that in Revelation chapter seven. And I'm gonna read this over you. And whatever is helpful for you just to, to try to visualize the moment. If you wanna close your eyes, you don't have to. There's nothing manipulative about it. But just to, to understand that this is, this is where we're headed. Revelation chapter seven says this. After this, I looked 
This is John in his vision. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Do you see the end, the amen of missions? Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language represented around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him, the ultimate sacrificial lamb slain for all of us and saying salvation belongs to our God. He sits on the throne and to the lamb. Will you be there? Every tribe will be there with some representation, but some still need a witness. Some still need a witness. Some still need to hear that the salvation that they long for, that they know they need, belongs to the Lamb. And the only way they'll ever know is if we tell them. What part will you play? Will we be a people on mission? I want us to be. Let it be, Lord. Let us be part of the amen of missions in our days on this earth. So as we close and the call to action today for us, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you would say you're not following him, then it's very cut and dry for you today, the call to action is salvation belongs to the Lord. Belongs to the Lord. Will you come to him to find salvation and rest? He gives freely grace to those who come. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I have three, three kind of small things just to say. Number one, one of the first call to action is for you to live out, live from your new identity. Not to live as though you're trying to acquire this identity, but live from it. That the obedience as you seek to make disciples of all nations and you seek to pray for those that are doing so and you seek to, to pray for the lost people that need to have their eyes open, that that all comes from your new identity, not to acquire it. The second thing is what role do you, will you play? What role are you gonna play in this? We all have a calling to do it. We may not all be called to transport our lives somewhere else, but we're called to be a part of the mission to the nations. And then the last thing is just don't let the deceiver 
rob you of confidence in the mission. Just don't let it happen. When he whispers like, you can't do that, you know how ineffective you'll be? You know your life. Don't let the deceiver rob you of the confidence that's like, that's right, I do. And I am redeemed child of the Son of God who has given me the power to take the nations, to take this gospel to the nations and you will not stand in my way. In the name of Jesus, get behind me, deceiver. Where are you at in this room, disciple of Jesus? Think through this as we pray. We'll have people down front to encourage you if you want to come down here and pray or to pray alone or pray in your seat, wherever that may be. But think through what the Lord is calling you to. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, we, uh, we're so grateful that somebody brought the gospel to this end of the earth. That we sit here in 2022 and we have a gospel witness. We know the name of Christ. We have the witness of the local church. We are a reached people and we are grateful. But Father, would you not allow us to get so comfortable as being a reached people that we forget unreached people, 7,414 of them that you know by name. And that as Revelation says that some of them will be at your throne, but we have to go. God, would you stir in us, would you give us wisdom? Like how? How? how to actually leverage our resources and our lives to reach that end. And if it be your will in this room today, would you call someone out to be that light in dark places that have never heard the gospel? Make us a people of mission, Lord, because your name being proclaimed in all the earth is worthy of our lives. And so we ask this in Jesus' name.